Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week... How did the Democratic presidential field get so white? Some people think that this is not a year that we can take a a risk. And people, I think, wrongly see nominating a candidate of color or a woman candidate as a risk. Then, OK, Boomer, it's more than an Internet meme. We talk about the cultural staying power of the baby boomer generation and the frustration over it. I don't know, has there ever been a generation that has left America so much worse than when they inherited it? And finally, a recommendation. You have to go into it knowing that people are going to starve to death, resort to cannibalism. You know, terrible things are going to happen. When the 2020 presidential campaign began, the Democratic field included multiple candidates of color. Two black senators, a Latino former cabinet secretary, and an Asian-American entrepreneur. But all of those candidates have trailed badly in the polls. And with Kamala Harris dropping out of the race, the first six candidates to qualify for the December debate are all white. It's a very strange situation, given how diverse the Democratic electorate is. So, Michelle, why do you think this is happening? So, look, I mean, this is one of these conversations where I wish it wasn't just, you know, three of us white people talking about it. But I think that there is such tremendous fear in the Democratic electorate. There's African-American Democrats who genuinely love Joe Biden, who appreciate him being Barack Obama's vice president, who have faith in him. And so I don't want to impute, you know, anxiety to everyone else. But what I see in when I go out and report is that the Trump election was such a shattering statement for a lot of people about what this country is capable of, that I think it destroyed a lot of people's faith in a female president, um, in the idea that a person of color can beat Trump. I mean, I think that's wrong. I think that particularly given the importance of African-American turnout and the fact that Barack Obama won two terms, I think an African-American candidate would be good for the Democrats. But again, I just think people are so scared and they are looking for the savior or the safe candidate. And traditionally in America, the safe candidate is a white man. That feels right to me. And there's been some discussion of this. But I do think there is also the Iowa and New Hampshire effect here, which is... Iowa and New Hampshire are really white states. They have no truly major cities. The closest thing is Des Moines. And I I just think it's inexcusable that this is how we run presidential campaigns. And I think it's just important to remember that we're talking about special treatment for Iowa and New Hampshire. I'm all for them getting to 
host presidential primaries first their share of the time. But it's all that ever happens. And people react to the early polls. And I think if the early polls had been of more diverse states, it's possible that Kamala Harris, who I don't think ran a good campaign, I think that's the main reason she struggled, but I think it's possible she would still be in the race. And so to me, it's combining, Michelle, what you're saying, which is this fear of how big a force that racism still is in our society with some circumstance, the fact that Kamala, who looked like a very good candidate, didn't run a good campaign, with the Iowa and New Hampshire effect. Right. But I guess the rejoinder to that is that it's not as if Kamala Harris or Cory Booker are polling much better in South Carolina or Nevada. That's fair. Right. If the South Carolina, if we flip-flop things and the South Carolina primary were held first, everyone would be talking about how Joe Biden was poised to coast to victory. And it's only because Iowa and New Hampshire are going first that his 25 to 30 point lead in South Carolina that people assume that will diminish a bit if he loses one of the early two states. And I mean, look, I I don't think it particularly makes sense to design the U.S. primary system with Iowa and New Hampshire always going first. But you know, the first black president of the United States, one Barack Hussein Obama, won the Iowa caucuses in a victory that was, I think, crucial to getting African-American voters who for a long time were sort of divided between him and Hillary to support him. I take Michelle's point about Trump-era anxiety, but it feels very strange to say that after the Democratic Party nominated Barack Obama twice, he won clear majorities, he remains incredibly popular, he would have beaten Trump had he run again, that the primary factor is this sort of flight to white. Right. But Ross, what I would say is that, you know, when I've talked to, you know, for example, I've talked to black political operatives in South Carolina who say that what they hear is they're not going to give us another one. Some people think that this is not a year that we can take a, a risk. And people, I think, wrongly see nominating a candidate of color or a woman candidate as a risk. And I would add one thing to that, and I'm interested in your response, Ross, which is I agree with Michelle that a black candidate could win. But I think we need to engage with the fact that the United States elected as its president someone with a decades-long record of being a pretty repugnant racist and, although we're focusing on race in this conversation, someone who also has a record of abusing women. So I understand why people look at that and they say, whoa, maybe this isn't the country that I thought it was and that that affects some of their choices, even unfairly, in the presidential campaign. I mean, I I totally buy that there is a desire for caution and electability among Democratic primary voters right now. And I completely agree that Trump, you know, no matter what, is a kind of shock to the system in terms of what it says about America. I just think there was a brief moment when Kamala Harris surged in the polls and seemed to be poised for takeoff. And her subsequent debate performances and her totally badly run presidential campaign, I think, say a lot more about her inability to take off. I mean, I mean, here's the thing, right? We have a democratic field right now where nobody has more than 20, 25% of the vote, right? So even if you assume that there is 
you know, a broad anxiety about supporting a woman or supporting a minority candidate, that hasn't prevented Elizabeth Warren from consolidating a spot in the top of the field. And I think it's reasonable that if Kamala had run a better campaign, she might not be lapping Joe Biden because of people's anxiety about race and gender, but she certainly would be competitive. I mean, I think a lot, a lot is explained here by this by the the fact that Joe Biden has a particular brand that appeals to a lot of older, somewhat more conservative African-American voters and the combination of his fame and influence and name recognition and the fact that not a lot of other candidates are going for those voters, including the minority candidates themselves, right? I mean, Julian Castro is not trying to win 57-year-old church-going African-Americans in South Carolina. Cory Booker is. Michelle, why do you think Cory Booker is struggling so much? I honestly don't know. Um, I mean, I think that a lot of Cory Booker's potential voters are probably going to Joe Biden or the people who want a former mayor Rhodes Scholar are going to Pete Buttigieg. But his failure to break out has been one of the most baffling things about this primary to me, because in a lot of ways, he's the candidate who would make me feel safest. Um, I mean, I think he would be formidable. But the only candidate so far that has sort of walked the line between being vanguard progressivism and just totally bland and safe is Pete Buttigieg. And in part because he appeals to a very different constituency than the potential constituency for Cory Booker, right? He appeals to largely older white people who really like the idea of generational change without political struggle. I just want to come back to Iowa and New Hampshire for a second. I know that Iowa voted for Barack Obama, and I take your point that it's not as if Kamala Harris was doing well in South Carolina. But I think Buttigieg's strength, and I like Buttigieg more than either of you do, I think his strength is an example of how much the Iowa and New Hampshire situation matters. And so if you didn't have overwhelmingly white states playing the role of vetting the candidates in the first two contests, I don't think Buttigieg would be in nearly the position he is in. And I think there would be much more discussion about people looking for an alternative to Biden who wasn't obviously Buttigieg and might not be a white candidate. But I would just urge Democrats, figure out a way to stop doing this where Iowa and New Hampshire get this special treatment where they get to go first every single time and you basically disrespect respect huge portions of your electorate who aren't white. But isn't there something here where independent of sort of the demographic specifics of Iowa, any system you set up that isn't just a national primary is going to have some states early on that become retail politics hubs, right? And one of the things that Buttigieg has clearly done well is I mean, he's good at talking, right? And this is sort of even if you change the order and flip things around every time, any system that starts out with a few small states and rewards retail politics is going to have some candidates who do well there before they show up in national polls. I mean, unless the argument is that 
we shouldn't do that, that retail politics doesn't matter anymore. But that, I mean, that's the theory, right, of having small states go first, that you want someone who can go into gyms and YMCAs and living rooms and so on and show something that people don't see at the national stage yet. Can I just say, like, you know, I agree with David, you know, if it was up to me, there would be a, a different order and it is inexcusable to have these non-representative states go first. I would say against that is that there is something to me very special about the way Iowa Democratic voters take their responsibility so seriously and go see these candidates up to three times. But one thing that we can say for Iowa is that they've seen Joe Biden up close a lot, and that's one of the reasons that he might not even place in the top three there. Can I just raise one other issue surrounding Buttigieg, which is that he's gay and we're sort of talking about him in this sort of, you know, he's white bread, vanilla, Midwestern, the nice young man for old people sense. But he's running his own kind of historic candidacy. And that means he has a certain kind of novelty on his side. He's clearly benefiting from the fact that Cory Booker was a novel figure many years ago. And then in the interim, we had our first African-American president. And now Buttigieg is running as potentially the first gay president. And that's not the key to his support. But it's I think it's not at all irrelevant, certainly not irrelevant to his donor base, I think. And I think you could argue that it isn't that Iowans or whoever are necessarily rejecting the black candidate. It's that there is a sort of media bias and maybe a voter bias towards, well, we did the last historic candidacy. Now, what's the next historic candidacy? Well, and it's interesting because one of the and I don't want to I think that that is an important breakthrough and would be an important symbolic step for the country. But I do think that having gotten to a place where gay marriage is accepted People can feel good about themselves for accepting or for supporting a gay candidate without really thinking that kind of power relations in the United States would be reordered as a result. Let's end by talking about the Veep stakes as early as it is. I mean, I've just gotten to the point where I think the odds are really, really high that the Democratic vice presidential nominee will be African-American. And that's both because there are some extremely well-qualified candidates and it's because I think Democrats really do believe, mostly correctly, that the decline in African-American turnout between 2012 and 2016 was damaging and they want to avoid that again. And so I feel like that barring some incredible comeback by Cory Booker, we're at a point in which the vice presidential nominee is likely to be Cory Booker, or Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams from Georgia. Does that feel right to you too? Yeah, that's definitely what I think. And I sort of think it depends on who the who the candidate is, right? I think that Kamala Harris is the most natural vice presidential choice for Joe Biden and Cory Booker is one of the more natural vice presidential choices for Elizabeth Warren. A quick note before we take a break. The year is coming to a close and we're thinking about the one ahead. We want to hear from you. What are your political resolutions for 2020? Maybe you're going to read more local news or canvas for a presidential candidate. Whatever it is, big or small, share your goals with us by leaving us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. We'll be back after the break. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 
37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. 1. Because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. It's the meme of the moment on Twitter and TikTok. Ayo, hey, yeah, this one goes out to all the 65 plus crowd on SoundCloud. Old ladies suck. Okay. Ross and Michelle, have you heard this song? I haven't heard that particular song. I mean, I've obviously heard Okay Boomer. Yeah, that was that was new to me, David, but it's really I'm really glad I've heard it. <laughs> well, it's by Peter Cooley and Jed Will, and it's the song that everyone seems to be setting their Okay Boomer TikToks to. The videos are a jab at the baby boomer generation and how out of touch they can seem to younger people. To many baby boomers on the other hand, the meme seems like a snide form of ageism. Either way, OK Boomer is more than a meme. It's a reflection of frustration with the enduring power of baby boomers. They still dominate politics. And Ross, as you pointed out to us earlier this week, baby boomers even dominate the Christmas music on the radio, with the one exception of Mariah Carey. So I guess the question is, why are boomers still so powerful? The reality is that the baby boomers were a huge demographic bulge that came of age in a period of maximal United States global power and wealth and influence and were sort of present. They weren't always responsible for it because they were a little bit too young, but they were present at and participated in this intense era of cultural ferment that gave us, you know, political transformations, the sexual revolution, rock and roll, the drug culture, everything else. And then they didn't have kids. There wasn't a baby boom, baby boom. So they exist as this force that, you know, was present at an incredibly culturally influential era, was incredibly rich, is still very rich, are still very numerous, and now are entering their prime voting years, right? Because older people are well known to vote more reliably and regularly than young people. So I, I think all of those are not surprising reasons for their enduring influence, not just over politics, but over everything down to like the Christmas Carol thing is a nice distillation. Almost all the secular modern Christmas carols that play in loops come from the period of the baby boomers' own childhood. Well, I don't know why. I mean, I don't know if I can explain their cultural endurance um, any more than Ross just did, but I can certainly explain why there is so much rage and antipathy towards them. And, you know, I say that even though, you know, as someone who's kind of Gen X, a lot of times 
we're sort of encompassed when yes. the kids say, okay, boomer, right? Yes. Kind of, but Very much. that said, I don't know, has there ever been a generation that has left America so much worse than when they inherited it? I mean, the amount of damage that they have done, and this might be one of those things that Ross and I can agree on, even though we kind of see the damage differently. The amount of damage that they've done to this country is so unforgivable. You know, OK Boomer is the least of what they should expect. David, what do you think about the boomers, man? Well, first of all, let me talk about the meme. I do think it's snide and kind of insulting. And I also am happy that it exists because there's this slightly funny thing in American society in which it's considered sort of socially acceptable to dismiss certain groups with broad generalizations. And the generational version of that is that for a long time, it's just been acceptable to say millennials and roll your eyes about all the ways that millennials are difficult. Some of which, by the way, are generalizations that have some truth to it. But I think it's actually quite useful for boomers to understand why it's so frustrating. And Michelle, as you pointed out, it's not just boomers, right? We're all Gen X. And uh, I can promise you, my children, when I say something they think is ridiculous, now say, OK, boomer. I mean, I, I guess I think that the boomers are a complicated generation. How could they not be? They played a really important role in the civil rights movement and the women's movement. There were a lot that boomers uh, were part of that I consider to be heroic struggles of success in this society. But basically, uh, Michelle, I agree with much of the indictment you just laid down. I know that many boomers uh, are as alarmed by it as I am. But when you look at what's going on with the climate, when you look at the state of American democracy, when you then compare how boomers are voting, and you then look at the economics of it, and it really is the case that the economic trends for people under the age of 45 or 50 are markedly, markedly darker than they were for the boomers. And, and I think that I think there is some real responsibility that baby boomers have as a generation to try to deal with some of these problems. And I see no evidence that it's actually happening. I think there's also just a lot of frustration that we increasingly live in a gerontocracy. But it is crazy that basically we have so few leaders under the age of 70 when was the last time there was a Democratic president who was um, over 60 when they were elected? I mean, you'd have to go back really, really far. And yet now you have the Democratic field dominated by people in their 70s. I mean, it's frustrating for me, and it must be even more frustrating for people younger than me. And, you know, obviously the rejoinder to that is, well, if they voted at the same rate, that older people did, then they would have more of a voice. And I think that's true. But it is still hard not to resent, you know, what is essentially a kind of ruling cohort. The defense of the boomers against the critique you guys are leveling is that they voted for Donald Trump, but they invented everything that we consider modern liberalism, too. They invented the gay rights movement. They invented modern environmentalism. Uh, you know, I, I think a baby boomer in this conversation, a baby boomer liberal would say, you know, you ingrates, how can you complain when everything, even wokeness and postmodernism and, you know, the progressive fringe, all these ideas come out of the 60s and 70s, right? I mean, that's the sheer power of the boomers is that they can say, well, we gave you Donald Trump, but we also, you know, we also created modern progressivism. We created everything. You can't escape us. So the other thing that's happening here, though, too, is that there's this 
broad demographic phenomenon, but there's also this clear shift in the last 10 years that centers around, I think, some combination of the Great Recession and the rise of the internet, where there's just this clear breaking point where there's a sort of new generational experience that involves less economic success, delays in marriage and family formation, the stuff we were talking about on last week's episode, that really means that a lot of millennials especially, not so, so much Generation X, are living in a different world, not only than the boomers, but than us. The last 10 or 15 years have created a kind of new culture, a poorer and less familially rooted under 35-year-old culture that's different and is more, I think, understandably alienated from older Americans and more likely to regard them as sort of clueless and out of touch. I think that's a big part of the story, too. I think that's right. But then the kind of normal course of events is that a generation under 35 or under 40 would sort of inherit the culture. And that's where there's been a breakdown, that they've been not permitted to do that for reasons both of, you know, like you said, economic stability, changing workplace, but also just because the boomers will not get out of the way. There's a way in which this subject actually makes me think of Mayor Pete and particularly, Michelle, what you've said about him, which is that he's sort of the older person or boomer's idea of what a younger person is. Or should be. Or should be. But he is a millennial who seems to actually appeal in large part to baby boomers. But that appeals to me as well, right? I mean, I'm not a Mayor Pete supporter, and there's a lot of things that I can criticize him for. But the idea of finally turning the page on this generation, although I should say that that was also part of Barack Obama's appeal. Nevertheless, the appeal of finally moving on, it's immensely enticing. The one thing I'd add about Obama is that by some definitions, he actually still is a baby boomer, which could mean that Generation X gets skipped entirely when it comes to presidents. Well, Generation X is the best generation. I mean, this is the this is the the core reality that I hope we can all agree on, right? We're we're the ones who basically come in and pick up the pieces after the baby boomers sort of try and tear everything down. We're the ones who sort of restabilize American culture, and then the millennials come along and tear it all down again. But this is the under-acknowledged truth about modern American life is that Generation X almost saved America, but then we got skipped over and now we're doomed. No, I strongly disagree. I mean, I feel like if America can be saved, it will be the millennials that do it. When I look at the millennials, it's not just that they are more progressive, more idealistic in certain ways and, and more kind of politically committed. They're also smarter about it. You know, for so long, I longed for kind of radicals to rather than, you know, nurture and seen fantasies about a third party that is completely untenable in our system to sort of begin the long march through the institutions in the same way that the right did and, you know, take over the Democratic Party from within. And it's finally the millennials that are doing that. Well, since all three of us are Gen X, as we have just been saying, uh, we particularly want to invite members of other generation, baby boomers, millennials, Generation Z, 
to call in and tell us your thoughts about these emerging generational wars and even what you think about the phrase, OK, Boomer. Leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. And as we've done before, we may play you on the show. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation when we suggest something meant to take your mind off of the news of the day. Ross, you get to go this week. What do you have for us? So this is a TV show that came out about a year ago, but my wife and I just got around to watching it, and it is from AMC, and it's called The Terror. It's based on a novel by Dan Simmons about a British expedition in search of the Northwest Passage in the 1840s that had featured two ships, the Terror and the Erebus, that were lost. And the ships themselves were only found, I think, in the last 10 years, entombed in ice and at the bottom of the sea. And nobody really knows what happened to their crews. And so this is a show based on a book that imagines what happened um, with grounding in the historical record, but also some Inuit supernatural elements woven in, too. Wait, so what happens? Is it like Gilligan's Island in the Arctic? No, I mean, it's 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 like the most harrowing thing you can imagine watching. I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything when I say, at the very least, most of them die. So I don't think it's for everyone, but it was really, I think, surprisingly gripping and remarkable. And when you say it's not for everyone, is that just because of how grim it is? Or is it also that it's sufficiently supernatural that people who who, who aren't into that will, will, will be turned off? Um, when I say it's not for everyone, I just mean that, you know, you have to go into it knowing that people are going to starve to death, resort to cannibalism, you know, terrible things are going to happen. And it's not like Titanic where Rose gets to go on even though Jack froze to death. I mean, there isn't sort of a a happy trajectory, really, out of the story. What's the recommendation again? It is AMC's The Terror. That's our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Kristen Schwab for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help, as we always do, from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll see you back here next week. Why is it that boomers still exert so much cultural and political power? Well, I mean, there were a lot of them, and there still are a lot of them. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad.